Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about the instrumental music of Bach's contemporary and friend, Georg Philippe Telemann. And there is an enormous amount to talk about. Georg was an incredibly prolific composer of both vocal and choral music, which we surveyed in episode 24, and instrumental music, our topic for today. We have a wide variety of instrumental genres to choose from today, but we're going to start with an unaccompanied piece, Fantasy No. 1 in B-flat major for violin senza basso, as Telemann put it, lacking continuo. As in the box suites for unaccompanied cello we looked at in an earlier episode, and in a number of other works by Bach I've mentioned along the way, Telemann opens the first movement of his fantasy, which is in 3-4 time and marked largo, with a melody that is initially split into two streams. The violin begins on a quarter note on a tonic B-flat below middle C, and on the next beat leaps up a tenth to the third of the chord, a D, which is decorated by an upper neighbor tone. This, not surprisingly, turns out to be the most important melodic gesture in the movement, although Telemann naturally introduces other attractive melodic ideas along the way. In the next measure, the first note, representing the lower voice, drops down a step to A, but in the upper voice, beats 2 and 3 from the first measure are repeated, so we already have a clear sense of two separate melodic flows, the bottom line descending by step, and the top line initially hovering around the same note, the third of the tonic chord. This feeling of two separate voices is made particularly clear by the fact that the two lines are separated by so much space, making it very easy for the ear to separate them. The top line in measure 3 breaks away from its hovering and begins a gradually descending line, disguised somewhat by its flipping to the upper octave in bar 4, which ends up back on D again. The bottom line continues to descend by step in measure 3, but breaks off after that, jumping up a fourth and then moving a step higher to the dominant, which is further strengthened by the use of a double stop third in order to set up a cadence on tonic in measure 5. There the pattern begins again, this time at piano rather than forte. Let's hear that much. My example went on for a few extra measures because I wanted to demonstrate a few things. First, as you could hear, Telemann does make a little more use of double stops as we proceed, frequently to fatten up and give more authority to an implied dominant chord before a cadence. 
One of those cadences actually involves a tonicization. You may recall that term from some earlier episodes. It involves very briefly establishing a new chord as the tonic, in this case it's G minor, by preceding it with a chromatically altered chord which functions as its dominant chord. The effect is usually fleeting, and it is here. In the very next measure, Telemann starts heading toward a cadence establishing F major as the new tonal center. You also heard some new thematic ideas in my extended example, notably a triplet-based motive, which is repeated down a step, and a new, slower-moving, ascending arpeggio figure. The latter disappears after a few bars, but the triplet figure becomes more prominent as we move on, soon linking with other triplet figures. Telemann never brings back the opening bars in their original form, but the large leaps embedded in the first two measures do return in various guises. Here are the final measures of the movement. We're going to hear just a little from the second movement of the fantasy, a highly energetic one, marked allegro and again in B-flat. It is very much a figuration-based movement, hardly surprising for a solo violin piece. It starts like the first movement with a leap of a tenth from the lower B-flat to the higher D. The first note simply establishes the tonic, and the main melodic movement flows from the D, which traces a generally descending line although one interrupted occasionally by large ascending leaps that echo the first two notes. The melody is constructed largely on an alternation of two rhythmic units, the first consisting of an eighth followed by two sixteenths, and the second a pair of eighth notes. The second measure may be heard in two different ways, as a descending continuation of the first measure's motive, or as a brief glimpse of fugal imitation, the first motive being imitated at the fifth, although actually sounding an octave lower. Of course, we know that Bach included fugal elements in his unaccompanied works, and Telemann does the same here, in a more limited way. The degree to which he incorporates fugal elements in these works for solo violin naturally differs from piece to piece. In this movement, we hear a glimpse of the fugal technique in some of his other fantasies or fantasias, most notably numbers 2, 3, and 6, it's a bit more obvious. Telemann in this movement introduces double stops earlier and more prominently than in the first movement, and in so doing begins to hint at multiple melodic lines again. The harmonizing double stops are added above the generally descending melodic flow and begin to establish something of a top voice melodic stream, a stream which is continued in the top voice of the figuration patterns which Telemann soon introduces. We'll hear the first six bars. The 
configuration pattern consists of a series of 16th notes in which the top note of the pattern on strong beats, beats 1 and 3 in the measure, implies one line, the repeated notes in the middle of the pattern another, although a static one, the middle voice begins by repeated lower neighbor tone figures on B-flat again and again, and the notes heard at the bottom of the pattern on the weak beats, beats 2 and 4, another, although this line also shows minimal movement between D and E-flat. These patterns are part and parcel of the general vocabulary for string writing at this point in the Baroque, but there's no question that Telemann wields them to great effect. It sounds completely logical, almost inevitable, even on first hearing. You'll probably notice that after a couple of bars of this pattern, Telemann breaks it off in favor of a primarily descending line using the rhythmic patterns I referenced earlier, which sets up a cadence on tonic. He then repeats those three measures, figuration pattern, cadence, and all. But he then leaves that figuration pattern, although we'll hear something very much like it in the last measure of the movement, to introduce a new idea. It's a series of flowing sixteenths, all staying reasonably high in the violin's range, and mostly scale-wise with some repetitions. After a few measures, this gives way to more of the somewhat mechanical figuration patterns, arpeggios of seventh chords in the first half of the measure, and leaping patterns in the second. These are repeated sequentially, and a series of repeated descending leaps are soon enriched by double stops. Then, something very much like the original melodic idea that began the movement is reintroduced and carries on for several measures. We'll hear from the introduction of the flowing sixteenth notes to the return of the original thematic idea. The movement closes with more repeated figuration patterns related to those we've already heard, and several more references, often varied, to the head motive which began the movement. Telemann composed a number of works for solo instruments, including not only violin, but viola da gamba and flute. He also composed a number of duets for instruments without continuo. But we're going to turn now to another genre which Telemann frequently exploited, more than 30 altogether, a fantasia or fantasy for solo keyboard. This one is number two in D minor, TWV 33-2, a three-movement work that begins presto and duple meter and moves to a slower and more harmonically adventurous adagio before repeating the faster first section. The first section in duple meter is written mostly in two parts with an occasional addition of double thirds in the right hand at cadence points. It does not make an extensive use of imitation although earlier Fantasias did, despite the fact that the title implies a freer, perhaps even improvised, sense of continuity, although the right-hand motives are frequently echoed, at least in part, in the left hand. The movement begins with right and left hand in octaves, moving down a tonic D minor triad with an assertive motive in the first bar. The second measure continues the mostly triadic motion, now ascending higher than the starting point. In the third bar, Telemann introduces a new motive, a descending scale line leading to a leaping figure, first down a fifth then up an octave. Both elements, the descending scale line and the leaping figure, are then repeated a step higher. 
Here's a simplified example of the right hand alone, the first seven measures. When you add in the left hand, it sounds vaguely modal in places, mostly because of the minor dominant chords, until the final half cadence locks us securely into D minor. Here's the first seven bars, up to tempo, both parts. The next four bars present a varied repetition of the first four, with some switching of motives between parts. Telemann then moves to A minor, employing familiar motives in the right hand before moving on to an expanding figuration pattern against a very effective descending chromatic scale in the left. As you can hear at the end of my example, Georg introduces some new, more generic scale-based passages as he proceeds, but he never abandons the earlier motives, especially the opening motive based on the descending tonic triad. We hear the descending chromatic bass line again as well, although this time in D minor. As we approach the end of the movement, Telemann gets a little more adventurous tonally, touching on G minor, F major, and B flat major in rapid succession. He closes the section in D minor, not with a final reference to the first measure motive, but by asserting the motive from the second bar, which conveniently ends on the tonic note. It's hard to imagine a more dramatic opening to the adagio section which follows. Four half-note, full diminished chords on F-sharp in a row take up the first two bars. Then the bass leaps up a tritone, and the right hand outlines a dominant minor ninth on D. Things settle down a little in the third bar as the dominant ninth makes a natural resolution to a G minor scale fragment. But we are right back to a state of high agitation in the fourth. This time it's three G sharp full diminished seventh chords in a row, followed by a dominant ninth in a near sequential repetition of the first four bars, this time ending on A minor. This is what it sounds like. Telemann forgoes the almost shocking full diminished seventh chords from this point, but the tension level remains reasonably high as he introduces a series of secondary dominant seventh chords, each one acting as the dominant seventh of the chord that follows, and each decorated with an eighth note lower neighbor figure which jumps back and forth between the left hand and the right hand. 
while the baseline cleverly descends by step in the process. We end up briefly on F major, but an ascending line in the right hand soon pulls us away and toward a cadence on A minor, which ends the adagio. Here is the second part of this 16-measure section. The first section is then repeated, giving the performer a chance to contribute a few embellishments, since this is, after all, a fantasia, and improvisation is historically part of the genre. We're going to move on now to a sonata in F major for soprano recorder and continuo, TWV 41 F2, from the composer's collection titled The Faithful Music Master, a collection put together and published by Telemann as a musical periodical, Remember, Telemann was a pioneer in the arena of self-published music. The Music Master contains a variety of different compositions in a variety of genres, for, as Telemann put it, different voice parts and almost all common instruments. So the collection was obviously designed for domestic use and was, in a way, pedagogical. It was not pedagogical in the sense of teaching elements of technique for performers or composers, as in box inventions, but more in the sense of providing attractive music that amateurs, at least skilled ones, would find satisfying. The collection, while it contains some light-hearted character pieces, was by no means all fluff. Telemann includes Bach's so-called Riddle Canon, BWV 1074, and some canons and fugues by Telemann himself. He also demonstrates his stylistic versatility by providing works in Italian, French, English, and even Polish styles, the last category mostly in the form of folk music-inspired dances like the Polonaise. But if the collection was not pedagogical in the sense that box inventions are, it was certainly a masterstroke of marketing, an area where Telemann showed great imagination and resourcefulness. Back to the Sonat in F major itself. In some earlier episodes, I mentioned how effective Bach was at integrating his melodies with repeated motives, both melodic shapes and rhythmic figures, so that even as the melody was spun out throughout a movement and into various other keys, it would retain a certain sense of identity. Well, Telemann also employs motivic integration to unify his melodies, even if it seems a bit more casual at times. For example, in the first three bars, Telemann gives us this. The mode of which begins this first section of the movement also begins the second section, as we'll see shortly. And the rest of the first two bars are packed with motives which he'll exploit again and again, in whole or in part, within that opening thematic statement and elsewhere in both the first and second sections. But Telemann also introduces some virtuoso figuration patterns early in the game, 
including some that make pretty formidable demands on the performer's ability to articulate cleanly. Harmonically, the first section is generally straightforward, introducing chromaticism only to set up the modulation to the key of the dominant, C major, where the first section ends. Here's the entire first section of 14 bars without repeat. The second section, 18 bars long, begins on the dominant as usual, and also as usual, is a little more adventurous tonally, introducing a few new chromatic chords before making a brief stop in G minor before moving on to C major and eventually back to F major. But most of the motives Telemann uses here are familiar ones. Here's the second section. We'll turn now to the brief Largo movement that follows. It's in D minor, 3-4 time, and the first section is a mere 8 bars in length. It begins melodically with a two-measure phrase that moves eloquently down the scale from the fifth to the tonic note. The second phrase, also brief, simply arpeggiates down a C-sharp diminished seventh chord and ends on the dominant. The section comes to a close with a gradually ascending phrase which moves back up to the dominant. The second section, also eight measures long, launches into G minor immediately with a new, more rhythmically active melodic figure incorporating eighth and sixteenth notes, although they're slightly obscured by the indicated ornamentation, after which Telemann references, in varied form, the phrase which began the first section. We're still in G minor at this point, but Georg brings back the opening phrase of this section, now down a fourth, and uses it to slip back into G minor where we end, three measures later, on a half cadence.
The third and final movement returns to F major. It's in 6A time, marked allegro, and the highly energetic melody suggests a gigue, although there's little evidence of imitation between the solo instrument and continual bass, which one might expect to find in a Bach gigue. The melody does feature some prominent large leaps typical of the style. An ascending leap of a major sixth into the second beat is the most notable feature of the opening motive, the contour of which is replicated in the second bar down a fourth, with the third and fourth measures relying on triadic arpeggios, ascending and descending. It's all pretty straightforward, with the harmonies alternating between tonic and dominant. But already by measure four, we encounter some complexities. The brightness of F major is suddenly darkened by an F minor chord, an unexpected tonic minor which passes to C minor, a minor dominant in the original key, as the melody introduces a new descending phrase decorated with lower neighbor tones. The F minor chord does have a little shock value, but the function of the C minor chord soon becomes clear enough as a transition chord to the new key of G minor. But it's really more of a tonicization, only a brief visit to the new tonal center, rather than a real modulation, because we no sooner touch on G minor than we're off to A minor, all of this engineered by the chromatically inflected melody, which is repeated a step higher, and a chromatically descending bass line, which does the same. Once in A minor, an unusual choice coming from G minor, although it all sounds very natural in context, we manage to stay there only briefly, while the melodic motive and accompanying descending bass line, which introduced us to all of this tonal instability, remains restless, now transporting us back to the original tonic of F major, where a variant of our opening melody takes control, heading us ultimately towards C major, the key of the dominant, drummed into our ears by a series of C major arpeggios. There the first section comes to an end. Let's hear that much. The second section, a bit longer than the first at 26 bars, behaves in a typical manner for binary forms of this sort, and moves quickly away from the key of C major, heading us toward the key of G minor, although this time negotiating the key change while employing the opening motive of the movement. Having arrived in G minor, Telemann quickly faints toward D minor, before pulling back to G minor while employing some new melodic ideas which bounce back and forth between large ascending and descending leaps vaguely related to the opening theme of the first section, but sounding quite different here. Eventually, and with the continual bass line gradually taking on a more rhythmically aggressive role, we actually do modulate to D minor, but it's not stable for very long, and with the help of repeated melodic sequences, we soon make our way back to F major, where the movement closes with a repeat of the last five bars of the first section, now transposed to the original tonic key. Here is the second section.
While this sonata is lacking any obvious displays of contrapuntal rigor, it is bountifully melodic and with enough clever harmonic excursions to provide it with at least a touch of sophistication. We're going to move on now to a trio sonata, one in E-flat major, TWV 42, ES1. This was a favorite genre for Telemann, as it was for most middle and late Baroque composers. Of course, Bach composed a perhaps surprisingly small number of trio sonatas so named, and with traditional instrumentation, although some of course may have been lost, and we'll look at these in a later episode. But the typical trio sonata texture, the idea of two melody instruments intertwining over a continuo, can be found in any number of compositions by Bach, notably in his solo sonatas, in which the right hand of the keyboard accompaniment takes on the role of an equal melodic partner to the main melody instrument, and the left hand supplies the bass line. We've seen a number of examples of that sort of configuration, and we'll see more in the future. It's true, of course, that in such an arrangement, you're missing the actual chord-producing function of the traditional continual part. But Bach, of course, was a master of inventing contrapuntal relationships between the parts that, while fully independent, nevertheless coalesce brilliantly into perfectly coherent and sometimes even daring chord progressions. But in this case, in the case of Telemann's trio sonatas, we're dealing with the more traditional configuration of two melody parts above a continuo, usually played by a keyboard instrument with the bass line doubled by a cello or bassoon. And with Telemann's gallant tendencies so frequently on display, we would expect his trio sonatas to constitute an altogether different species than Bach's. And for the most part they do, but they are nevertheless very interesting works. As usual, I make no claim that my example tells the whole story of Telemann's trio sonatas, since, as usual, they vary to some extent stylistically. But this trio sonata in E-flat major is, I think, reasonably typical and quite interesting. This and other trio sonatas are contained in Telemann's popular Tafelmusik, or Table Music Collection, of 1733. The tradition of Tafelmusik, live musicians, instrumentalists, and vocalists, providing a variety of pieces to entertain the dining guests, is an old one dating back centuries before Telemann and can be found throughout Europe over that time span. We associate this table music mostly with royalty and nobility, if for no other reason than the expense of employing a set of musicians, large or small, for two and a half or three hours. But the wealthier members of the middle class understandably found it an attractive custom to imitate and even the most modest wedding feast was most likely adorned by musical accompaniment of some sort. Of course, Telemann's table music, 18 pieces in three sections, or productions as he labeled it, ranging from solo sonatas and trio sonatas to suites and concertos for orchestra, was meant to fill the needs of a reasonably elevated gathering. And we can't overlook the marketing value of labeling this collection as Tafelmusik. It suggested that this was a collection of the finest music designed to meet the highest standards of the nobility, giving it substantial prestige value. Such a consideration was by no means beyond Telemann, whom we know from several other endeavors was a canny businessman. And the ploy worked. Georg offered up the collection for advanced subscriptions, and 185 eagerly signed up, including members of the nobility, Kapellmeisters from various locations, and a wide variety of musicians throughout Europe, including Handel and Quantz. 
By the way, for those people interested in a thorough and highly informative survey of the table music tradition in general, I'd like to recommend Stephen D. Zahn's 2016 treatment of the subject, available from Oxford Handbooks Online. Okay, back to the Telemann Trio Sonata in E-flat major. The first movement is marked affettuoso and usually played at a moderate tempo. The opening theme is presented first in the second violin. It begins with a descending triad, starting on the fifth of the scale, with a tonic at the bottom of the triad embellished by a lower neighbor tone. Then, after an octave leap up and back down again, a triad-based figuration pattern takes over, one which also displays a number of octave leaps. Here are the first three bars in a simplified, slowed-down version, eliminating several trills. This thematic idea is imitated by the first violin at the fifth, halfway through bar three. After it finishes its imitation, the first violin initiates its own thematic idea, featuring a sustained note tied into a group of sixteenth notes, a figure which is then repeated down a fourth and followed by more triadic-based leaps. This new idea heads quickly to F minor, but doesn't stay there long. Here's the second idea, again simplified. This second idea is imitated in turn by the second violin in C minor, but again, it doesn't stay in that key very long. We eventually head to B flat major, the key of the dominant, but it takes a while to get there and introduces a third idea along the way, an ascending, mildly syncopated figure doubled in thirds with a somewhat unexpected quarter note rest temporarily interrupting the flow. Here's the first part of it. Telemann brings back the original theme on the original tonic as we proceed toward the end of the movement. But before he does so, he introduces one additional idea and subjects it to a bit of imitation. It begins with three staccato repeated eighth notes in the first violin, just as we cadence on the dominant, and, after repeating those, moves on to a more typically violinistic figuration pattern, in which the second violin joins characterized by large leaps and projecting a sense of dual melodic lines on the top and bottom of the pattern, and in places, very rapid changes in dynamics. Here's the beginning of the passage. Let's hear how it all fits together in an excerpt ending with the return of the first thematic idea.
So, again, Telemann seems to be more interested in producing a flow of attractive ideas than in a particularly tight-knit motivic integration of the melody. That does not mean that these movements are unsuccessful, because Telemann's melodic fecundity is really quite impressive, but his approach is somewhat different than the one Bach so frequently takes. After the final cadence in E-flat major to end the movement, there is a tacton measure marked adagio, which sends us back to B-flat major. This measure is usually played out of tempo and may serve as a mini-cadenza before we launch into the final movement, a vivace and 3A time back in E-flat major. The opening theme heard in the first violin is simple enough, skipping up a third from tonic and then moving down the scale in 16th notes, followed by a trill on the dominant, a pattern which is then repeated starting on the third of the tonic chord. All of this harmonized in sixths and thirds by the second violin and followed by some fairly generic figuration patterns. Here is a simplified example of the first six bars. After the figuration passage is spun out sequentially, taking us to G minor, a new syncopated figure is introduced. The new melodic idea takes us to B-flat major, where Telemann sits for a while, while repeating a quick little descending curl motive, employing two thirty-second notes in a sixteenth, embellishing the B-flat note with upper and lower neighbors, still doubled in sixth and thirds, and again featuring rather sudden changes in dynamics. Here's the beginning of that passage. More figuration patterns follow until we arrive at the end of the first section in B-flat major. Here is the entire first section. The second, longer section of the movement wastes no time in moving to F minor via a somewhat unexpected diminished chord, while introducing a new thematic idea which begins with repeated sixteenths, starting in the second violin and moving quickly to the first. After eight bars, another new idea is introduced over the repeated sixteenths in the continual bass, an undulating swirl of thirty-second notes, starting on the first beat of the measure and doubled by the second violins, this new idea taking us to a cadence on C minor. Let's hear that much. As you could hear at the end of my excerpt, more generic triadic-based patterns then take over as we move first to G minor and then back to C minor before finally working our way back to the original key of E-flat major. Telemann quotes the opening theme at that point, 
but proceeds from the first few bars differently this time and quickly reveals that he is not done modulating. He moves back to C minor, reintroduces the syncopated figure I mentioned earlier in connection with the first section of the movement, and then brings back the swirling idea and the repeated sixteenth notes from the beginning of the second section. But of course he finally returns to E-flat major, and the final measures of the movement are dominated by fairly generic, although certainly energetic, figuration patterns. Here's the conclusion of the second section. The next movement, somewhat akin to a traditional sarabande, is in 3-2 in C minor and marked grave. The initial theme, presented in the first violin, is a bit grim. It starts on the offbeat with a fifth of the scale dropping down to the tonic before moving on to a swirling figure in sixteenths, something like the one we encountered in the previous movement, but compared to that one moving quite a bit slower. The second measure is basically a sequential repetition of the first, moving up a step, while the third bar arpeggiates up a dominant seventh chord in order to land us back on the tonic on beat one of measure four. In that same measure, the second violin begins its imitation at the unison of the first four bars. At the close of this imitation, which set up some nice dissonant suspensions along the way, as you heard at the end of my example, the two violins begin to echo the final motive of the opening theme back and forth, and then proceed to spin out the earlier swirling figure, after which the passage trails off with repeated notes rendered with increasingly softer dynamics as we move toward B-flat major. From there to the end, we hear these same ideas play out, along with some interesting chromatic effects and a couple of modulations through to the end of the movement. The final movement is a jaunty allegro in E-flat major and in 2-4 time. The first thematic idea, presented in the first violin, involves gently syncopated figures that move up to E-flat major scale. This ascending figure is immediately imitated by the second violin, with the result being a passage harmonized in thirds and sixths. After ascending for an octave and a half, the melody descends, 
and then moves on to another idea, an eighth note triplet leading to an arpeggio-based figuration pattern in the first violin, with minimal accompaniment from the second. Four bars later, after a modulation to C minor, the tables are turned, and the second violin produces a variant of the same idea. This combination of triplets and repeated figuration patterns dominates for a while, but when Telemann makes his way to F major, just a stop on the way to B flat, actually, but he stays there quite a while, a new idea is heard, the two violins combining in thirds and sixths with a descending line featuring pairs of repeated notes. Another new idea is tagged on as we head to the end of the first section, one which has the two violins alternating trills on the tonic note. Different versions of these ideas take us to the end of the section and the cadence on B-flat, the key of the dominant. In the second half of the movement, Telemann brings back the opening bars of the first section, now in B-flat major, the second violin again chasing the first. It doesn't unfold in quite the same way, though, the composer forcing an early modulation to C minor. For quite a while after that, it's the rhythm of the opening theme, not the theme itself, that dominates in the second violin, while the first violin overlays triadic-based passage work against it. Passage work, some of it tied to earlier motives, continues to dominate until the actual first theme returns in the original key of E-flat major, and much, if not all, of the first section is then recapitulated as we head toward the final cadence, capping off a solid and at times highly inventive trio sonata. Once again, we see that Telemann is less interested in the exhaustion of a small number of motives than he is with overwhelming us with a flow of not always closely related but nevertheless effective melodic gestures. We turn now to Telemann's quartets, more specifically his so-called Paris quartets. This group of 12 quartets includes two different sets. One, quartets for flute, violin, viola da gamba, or cello, and continuo, published in Hamburg in 1730, and one published in 1738, titled New Quartets. Taken together, they came to be known as the Paris quartets because they were so popular there and smoothed the way for the composer's great success when he visited Paris between 1737 and 1738. Telemann always prided himself on his ability to juggle different national styles, and he does so here very successfully, although different quartets have a reputation for leaning one way or another. For example, the concertos, as they are indicated in the score, in G major and D major, are associated with the Italian style. The sonatas in A major and G minor with the German style, demonstrating a little more reliance on imitative counterpoint, and the suites in E minor and B minor with the French style, the whole group of them sometimes interpreted as an homage to François Couperin, who had, more than a decade earlier, published a collection of pieces also indicated to be expositions of various national styles. 
We're going to focus on the D major quartet, TWV 43D1, from the first collection published in 1730, perhaps a little less renowned than the second collection, but like the second, brimming with gallant masterpieces. The first of three movements, marked allegro and in common time, begins with a key melodic phrase assigned to the flute, but doubled in tenths below by the viola da gamba. Starting on the third of the scale, the first two bars move gently up and down the scale, the line decorated by trills and lower neighbor tones. Leading into the third bar, Telemann introduces a faster-moving three-note motive, two thirty-second notes and a sixteenth, that darts down the scale on the offbeats three times, each time a step lower. The level of melodic activity, at least in the flute part, then slows briefly as we hear a series of triadic arpeggios in eighth notes preface each time by that quick little descending three-note motive or a four-note variant of that motive. Here's what it sounds like in a simplified version, the first four bars flute only minus the ornamentation. But of course, that's just the flute part. In these and in his later quartets, the entire texture is bursting with energy, and although the viola da gamba here is doubling the flute melody, the violin is hopping around on repeated octave leaps until it starts doubling the flute in thirds while the gamba takes over the leaping octaves. Here's an excerpt of the first 16 bars. As we move into bar 8 and beyond, three important new ideas are introduced, a syncopated descending line in the violin, and a series of 16th note figures in the viola da gamba, mostly stepwise and ascending. Against this 16th note activity is the syncopated descending line and the pumping octaves now heard in the flute. The continuo bass line, which generally moves independently from the viola da gamba line, also begins to get a bit busier. Right at the end of my excerpt, after the cadence on tonic that marked the end of the first part of the movement, you heard the last new thematic idea I'm going to focus on. It began in the flute with three repeated notes, moved on to a repeated arpeggio up a dominant seventh chord, and then trailed off with a series of descending two-note motives on weak beats, as the violin stepped up to imitate it at the unison, followed a couple of bars later by the viola da gamba. This is by no means the last new idea that Telemann introduces as the movement proceeds. But you can see the difficulty involved in describing all of the thematic ideas and showing their interrelationships, if any, because there are so many and they come so quickly. Some, it's true, are developed or spun out to a degree, perhaps passing from one instrument to another in imitation. Others appear for a few bars, never to be heard from again, at least not in any clearly recognizable form. And the textures keep changing as well. As we move to the middle of the movement, the flute is given a four-bar solo passage of mostly sweeping scale lines, accompanied only by continuo. 
and somewhat later the solo violin is also featured in a figuration-based passage dominated by broken thirds. Some measures after that, the gamba is given its own featured passage based on a similar figuration pattern. But while this parade of new thematic ideas is striking, it's not as if Telemann has completely abandoned all of his earlier ideas. The original theme for the first four bars returns, with the instrument switched around a bit, once in the key of A and once in the key of G major, as does the syncopated descending scale line I mentioned earlier. But he keeps introducing new ideas alongside the old. One particularly effective one, taken up in turn by each of the obligato instruments, is introduced as the continual bass provides a sustained pedal beneath it. In this performance, not in all, this section is taken at a slower tempo, almost as a shared notated cadenza. After this quasi-cadenza, a bustling new motive, although certainly related to what we've already heard, is introduced, accompanied by the leaping octaves in the flute first encountered in the opening measures, as we speed to the finish line. Here's an excerpt starting from that point through to the end of the movement. Coming next in 6A time, G major, and marked affettuoso is a serene, lilting, pastoral-like movement which makes a persistent use of the dotted 8th, 16th, 8th rhythmic patterns typical of that style. The opening melodic phrase is presented by the viola da gamba in double stops and answered by short, very gallant-sounding triplet-dominated phrases played in six by flute and violin. A variant of the first phrase is then repeated, pausing on the dominant, and answered once again by the flute and violin, all of this taking place in the first five measures. This is followed by a somewhat lengthy passage highlighting the gamba with continuing support from the continual. The lilting dotted note figures still dominate, but the mood is a little more poignant with a number of accented non-harmonic tones presented by the gamba mostly in double stops. After four bars, the gamba interrupts the repeating rhythm with a series of sixteenth note triplets employing a number of lower neighbor tones. This new idea is not particularly conspicuous when you first hear it, but it becomes important later on.
These ideas, or variants of them, dominate as the movement unfolds. There's even a little imitation between flute and violin based on one of these variants as we approach the middle of the movement. Later, the flute and violin switch roles with the gamba in a new version of the passage I just played. The gamba introduces some new repeated note motives later, but they remain secondary in importance. However, the gamba's triplet pattern, which I referred to earlier, becomes very important in the last measures of the movement. The final movement of the quartet is a vivace in 3A time and back to D major. The opening, rather lively flute melody begins by charging up the scale in 32nd notes from the tonic D, and a few notes later, leaping up a fourth to end an octave higher than it began, before starting a more gradual descent, doubled mostly in thirds by the violin. The gamba fakes an imitative entrance in the third bar, but by the fifth, after the first phrase has once again landed on the tonic, the violin softly actually pulls one off, the gamba now filling the accompanying role against it. After a fast-moving figuration pattern in the flute answered by the violin, which you heard a bit of at the end of my example, the flute introduces a new syncopated melody related to the opening tune, but much more prone to jagged leaps with some quasi-imitation in the violin and viola da gamba. A slightly simplified version of the same melody now becomes the subject of a sustained dialogue between flute, violin, and gamba. The key motives constantly bounce back and forth between the three instruments. This is interrupted by some flashing scale passages first in the flute and violin, and later spreading throughout the texture, even into the continual bass line. There then comes a long passage dominated by repeated figuration patterns and repeated note patterns. Earlier themes return, but so do the figuration patterns, including some repeated note violin patterns that sound very Vivaldian, and of a sort which Bach referenced occasionally in his concertos. The continuity seems a bit scattered as we proceed with figuration patterns dominating, but references to earlier melodic motives pop up here and there as well. Here is the conclusion of the movement.
As I suggested earlier, the second set of quartets, the last six of the Paris quartets, are probably the most famous, but this incredibly colorful and perky finale of the D major quartet does a great job of summing up Telemann's most attractive attributes, an unerring ear for inventive instrumental timbres, and a seemingly unending supply of fresh and buoyant melodic ideas. Although I've personally always been partial to Telemann's work for smaller ensembles, there's no question that he made significant contributions to orchestral music in his lifetime. And in terms of Telemann's works for orchestra, there are two very important categories. His overture suites, of which he composed a great many and which unquestionably influenced any number of Baroque composers, including J.S. Bach, and his concertos. Because this episode is running a bit long, we're going to take a quick look at only one of Telemann's concertos, even though there are a great many to choose from in a wide array of instrumental combinations. For this last example, I'm going back to the composer's table music collection for his concerto for flute, violin, and cello in A major, TWV 53A2. Its inclusion in this collection suggests that he ranked it highly of the concertos he had composed at that point in his career. The work is in four movements, slow, fast, slow, fast, Telemann hearkening back to the older Corelli approach rather than the newer three-movement, fast, slow, fast type, favored by Torelli and Vivaldi, although Telemann himself sometimes adopted that three-movement approach as well. The orchestra consists of first and second violins, violas, and cellos with continual accompaniment, and the solo group, or concertino group, features transverse flute, solo violin, and solo cello. The opening ritonello for the first movement, Mark Largo and In Common Time, in which the three soloists join with the full orchestra, presents a stately arpeggio-based theme interrupted after three bars by a brief interjection by the soloists, who introduce brief gallant-style motives featuring rapid, short-long rhythmic values. The full orchestra then resumes with a variant of the opening bars emphasizing a syncopated figure for three more measures, after which the soloists provide another interjection, this time initially with quick little descending motives followed by a descending cascade of short-long figures. After some sweeping arpeggios in octaves, we cadence back in the key of A major, and the opening ritonello comes to a close. Let's hear that much. For the first solo section, the soloists take over with a reduced orchestral texture beneath them. The flute presents a new idea, one marked by ties into strong beats and upper neighbor tones ornamenting the tonic triad. The solo violin answers by quoting the opening melody of the ritonello, joined briefly by first violins, before moving on to its version of the new flute motive. 
The flute then takes a turn at quoting the opening motive before the solo violin, doubled mostly in sixths by the solo cello, introduces a series of mostly arpeggio-based sixteenth-note triplets. From then on to the end of the solo section, we hear the solo instruments mostly trading off short motives from the ritonello at one point against cello figuration patterns and occasionally presenting those motives in thirds and sixths. Here's an excerpt starting at the beginning of the first solo section and ending with the end of that section and the arrival in E major, the key of the dominant. In a concerto grosso such as this, we expect to find solo or concertino sections alternating with repiano sections involving the full orchestra, presumably referencing the original ritonello. But as we know from several of the earlier Bach concertos we looked at, the return of the whole orchestra does not necessarily mean we're going to hear the ritonello themes, in all or even in part. Sometimes the full orchestra makes the briefest of appearances to merely echo motives from the solo section. At other times, such as at the end of the solo section you just heard, the full orchestra returns with the second half of the original ritonello, but is soon interrupted with fragments from the solo instruments. Even the final ritonello, which closes the movement, only represents an abbreviated version of the original ritonello, back now in the original tonic of A major, before charging to the final cadence. The next movement, in 3-4 and marked allegro, opens with a 30-measure ritonello that begins with the entire orchestra, including soloists, in an octave drop, followed by a charge up the A major scale, and after another octave drop, an arc-shaped motive ending on the third of the scale. As the dynamic level is reduced to piano, the first four bars are then repeated without the flute, and from that point on, a series of new ideas are introduced, beginning with repeated sixteenth notes in the violins, again sustained notes in the flute, later turning into arpeggios, played forte, and a series of quick little ascending figures tossed back and forth with fluctuating dynamics. The second part of the ritonello introduces more new ideas, with the orchestral first violins joining the flute and solo violin, in a flow of descending sixteenth-note passages and octave-leaping figuration patterns, which finally settle down to a cadence, back on A major, after which the first solo section begins, 
Let's hear that much. The first solo section is kicked off by the flute with a short, shrill-written phrase, but it almost immediately gives precedence to the solo violin and cello as they combine in an interlocking figuration pattern of sixteenth notes. After only 11 measures, a much shortened version of the opening ritonello returns, but soon the solo violin is back with its figuration patterns. This dynamic remains in place through much of the first part of the movement, although the solo violin and flute sometimes exchange roles, and the soloists introduce some new triplet-based ideas along the way. But the only real surprise comes when a middle section is introduced with the orchestral strings and the solo cello reduced to a light pizzicato accompaniment against the solo flourishes, most based on earlier motives and figuration patterns, from the flute and solo violin, which continue to trade phrases and occasionally come together in thirds and sixths. Here's a bit of this much more delicate middle section. This extended passage of substantially reduced texture is a bit unusual, but it does not conclude the movement. Telemann employs a da capo indication to send us back to the beginning of the movement, and the whole first section is played again. The third movement, still in A major, is another lilting 6-8 movement replete with dotted 8 16th 8th rhythms and marked grazioso. The opening ritonello section, six bars in length shared by flute, solo violin and first violins, and doubled in thirds below by second violins, is marked by a number of accented non-harmonic tones, lending a hint of poignance to its generally stately quality. The solo violin takes the first solo opportunity, and although it makes use of some of the same motives as the opening ritonello, it initially adds in some mildly syncopated short-long rhythmic combinations, the shorter note, or pairs of notes, on a strong beat leaping up to the longer. 
It soon combines these short, long figures with repeated notes, as the solo cello comes in to double the line a tenth lower. After five measures, the flute enters with a similar idea, now based on the dominant chord, and is soon joined by the solo violin, doubling it in thirds as the first solo section comes to an end. The Ritzonello theme returns, now in E major, and ends in that key eight bars later. Of course, we expect to hear a return to the tonic of A major at that point, and perhaps a new solo section. We do hear from one of the soloists, the solo cello in fact, in its first solo exposure, but we hear it in the surprising key of D major, a full step down from the dominant. Is this shocking? Certainly not to modern ears, but to Telemann's contemporaries, it might have seemed a bit daring. The cello's thematic material draws only modestly from the opening Ritonello theme, taking a somewhat more rhythmically assertive stance and mixing in tumbling scale lines. Here's the end of the second Ritonello, going into the cello solo, ending with the start of the next Ritonello section. From that point on, abbreviated ritonellos alternate with and sometimes briefly interrupt solo sections, which sometimes harken back to earlier solo episodes and sometimes introduce reasonably distinctive new ideas. And of course, Telemann reverts to more or less neutral passage work from time to time. The movement comes to a quiet close on the dominant, ready to launch us to the vigorous final movement. Marked Allegro and in common time, the opening ritonello for the final movement presents a rhythmically distinctive, highly Vivaldi-esque theme, hardly surprising given Vivaldi's enormous influence on concerto writing in the later Baroque. It strings together several different but completely compatible ideas, with the soloist participating actively and the flute even given a few minor solo opportunities, sustaining a longer note in a couple of places before joining in with the rest of the orchestra.
At the end of my example, you heard a little of the beginning of the first solo or concertino section. After the rhythmically emphatic ritonello theme, the exposed flute and solo violin, characterized by dotted rhythms and trills with minimal support from the solo cello, sounds rather delicate, maybe even a little precious. You also probably noticed that the orchestra interrupts this delicate display with a quick reference to the more robust theme of the ritonello, which it does again as the solo section continues. After a little bit of imitation between the flute and solo violin, the two of them engage in a rather coquettish exchange of short but cleverly interlocking phrases until the next fragment of a ritonello makes its appearance. As we proceed through the rest of the movement, there's another key change, and the flute and solo violin move to a new version of the phrase just subject to imitation. But they don't bother with the imitation this time, but instead simply spin it out in thirds and then trade more brief interlocking motives. The more delicate opening section returns as well, and as we continue on, solo sections and mini ritonellos alternate at an accelerating pace. Some, in fact, turn out to be a little more than brief interruptions to an ongoing solo section. But there is eventually a clear and unambiguous return to the opening ritonello statement in A major, and one might expect the movement to end at that point. But this is once again a de capo form concerto movement, and there is a contrasting, much quieter middle section starting in A minor, where first the solo cello and then the other soloists have an additional opportunity to shine. The main melodic material draws to an extent from the opening ritonello, but with the new key, it seems largely new. <laughs> And then, of course, the da capo returns us to the beginning, where the entire first section is repeated. It's a fascinating concerto, 
and it's easy to see why Telemann selected it for inclusion in his table music collection. This episode has gotten a bit lengthy, but we've obviously just scratched the surface of Telemann's formidable instrumental output. There's a lot more to hear, and I think it will reward the effort. It's back to Bach now for the next episode, as we take a look at his famous Goldberg Variations. <laughs> 